look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money here on News Talk 770. <clears throat> a good show lined up for you today. We're going to get a bit of an update on the markets with Manulife's Dan Janice. We're going to get a bond guy's perspective on what the heck the markets are telling us, where the fears are, the risks, and the opportunities lie, and what is all this about negative yields, and how do you make money when you've got bonds that you have to pay people to actually uh, own? So we'll get Dan Janice's take on that and a little bit about how it uh, potentially affects income. We're going to find out how Albertans feel about their doctors today. Might be surprised. And, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about seniors, as we often do. But how do we actually feel about our seniors here in Alberta? There's a new poll that's been out, and uh, we're going to talk to, uh, to the executive vice president of the company that put that out to get some insights as to how we feel about, about what we're doing for seniors in this province and how they're contributing. So I want to welcome to the show David Valentin. He's the executive VP of Main Street Research. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So most Albertans seem to feel value or value the contributions of seniors, uh, but there's room for for growth, according to this most recent poll that you and uh, and Post Media did. Maybe just give us a bit of background on what the poll, what you were looking for in this, and we'll talk about the uh, what you found. Sure. Well, what we were looking to find out is is whether people think their contributions are making a difference and whether they're being appreciated or not. And also to look at how senior citizens are being treated. Are their contributions value, uh, valued? And, and do people think that their communities across the province are doing enough? And so what we're finding is uh, most people, 44% across the province, are saying that their communities aren't doing enough for seniors. Are and not doing enough. Imp- are not doing enough. And of course, that's hugely important because uh, Alberta and Canada's population is aging. And so... Yeah. There will be more sooner, sooner rather than later, and that's putting a lot of strain on different social services, on, on health care. Uh, but also when we ask people this question, you know, in the here and now, people don't think enough services are being provided. Now, is that when you, when you ask that question, are you asking it of seniors or are you asking it of a, um, a, broad, uh, a, a broad constituents of, uh, of Albertans? We're asking it of everyone, and it's interesting that, that younger respondents, those under the age of 50, are much more likely to say that the communities are not doing enough for seniors as opposed to seniors themselves. Seniors themselves are actually the most likely um, have to have the smallest spread as to whether or not they think that uh, the services are being met. So really it's quite a a big uh, difference here when you look at the age differences. Um, Only 37% of seniors say that their needs are not being met in communities. 50% of people 35 to 49 say the same. And this reflects uh, th- those realities that families are now finding, especially younger people, that they're being asked to contribute uh, to help their parents, to help their grandparents. Um, they see what's available for them and what's not, and it's not, in some cases, beating their expectations. So uh, just curious, not sure if the, the poll went into this level of detail or not, but when seniors are saying their needs aren't met, that 35%-ish, um, was there any, could we draw any conclusions about what needs? Were there broad categories, or was this just a broad statement? This was just a broad category to, to, to begin seeing um, if the topic deserves more exploration. I think one of the things that we found from the survey is that we might want to go back now and ask, now that we know that this sentiment exists, to, to drill down and find out what exactly is driving it and what needs and what more facilities and services can be added for seniors um, that we can invest in now so that we're not 
a disadvantage in the future. Anything that you start now will really have a benefit in two, three, four years in some mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the population is aging. So if we don't make investments today, uh, we might not have the services in place uh, four or five, ten years from now. And then there's a real crunch when you have uh, the baby blue generation uh, sort of aging at the same time. And the other thing to keep in mind, and, and this is a good problem to have, I'll point out, people are living longer. And this is not a great problem to have, that everyone is living a little longer these days. As and long we as we're doing it with a good quality of life, though, right? As long as we're doing it with a good quality of life. Yeah. And that's the part here that we're looking at. But because yeah. of all these improvements in medication and different procedures, and, and the fact that we are all more aware, I think, of how to live healthy lifestyles, even if maybe not all of us engage in healthy lifestyles, at least the information is there in a way that it never was before. Um, so, you know, these are the realities that Alberta's going to have to face. And, and again, you know, um, it looks from the polling that people in Edmonton are actually the most concerned that Edmonton's not meeting the priorities or hmm. needs of seniors. And so that's really interesting to us. And it, and it does show that there is a bit of a disconnect there compared to the rest of the province. Um, it does now, you were, sort of tell you the Sorry, yeah, David, the poll wasn't just looking at whether or not services uh, were being provided, but also about seniors' economic contributions. And I'm curious right. a little bit about that. Maybe maybe just walk me through a little bit about what, what you were looking for and what the poll sort of discovered about how uh, that 50, that younger than 50 group feels about economic contributions the seniors are making versus the seniors themselves. And th- that's a great question. And part of the reason to ask this is because any investments in, in one age group as opposed to another um, can lead to resentment if people don't think there's being value provided by that generation or value being provided in those services. So that's why we want to make sure we, we know what people's priorities are. Now, when we ask people how valuable the contributions of senior cities, uh, citizens are to the community, uh, you know, overwhelming score is very valuable, even among those under the age of 50. And so that's very important that, that everyone across the spectrum thinks that what our seniors are doing for the community is valuable. And when we ask about their contributions for the economy, again, uh, seniors more, more likely than others to say that their contributions are valuable, and, and I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, 89% among those 50 to 64, uh, in, in the mid-70s for those 35 to 49, and in the mid-70s for those 18 to 34. So people right across the, the age spectrum are telling us they think seniors are doing con- important contributions to the economy and to their community. Um, so I think there is that social capital there to to invest more in senior services as a result, since there is that recognition that, that this is a community of people who are helping out our communities and economy. Yeah, I think that's terrific. Um, David, we have to leave it there. I want to thank you for um, for clarifying what the what the poll was saying. And uh, clearly, there's some other questions you know we're gonna you want to ask, and we want to keep polling. But we uh, we look forward to keeping in touch with you on that. It was great to chat with you today. We've been joined by David Valentin, executive VP of Main Street Research, talking about a recent poll about um, how we perceive seniors' contributions. Um, now, before we uh, before we finish up this segment, I thought it was an interesting week. I just want to spend. Uh, a minute or two talking a little bit about uh, some some uh, big macro issues, uh, in particular oil. We've spent a lot of time talking about that, but also some central bank caution um, that has, uh, I think, um, taken some of the froth out of the interest rate moves that are being priced into the market. Now, in combination, these two things, oil falling uh, and some of the potential problems that, um, you know, that you might glean from that, i.e., is global demand, global growth, therefore, so global demand for oil, driven by global growth. Is it slowing? 
right? So we've had lots of recent data about the fact that even with these cuts that the OPEC and big non-OPEC countries have made, that in 2018, most recent forecasts would indicate that production supply is going to outstrip demand. So is that demand a growth issue? And if it's a growth issue, are we seeing a slowing in, the, in global growth and therefore global economies? Now, when we kind of take that data and we marry it to some of the commentary that's uh, come out this past week from various central bankers, including the Bank of England's governor, Mark Carney, who's a Canadian boy. And uh, there was some uh, speeches by various uh, U.S. Fed presidents. Charles Evans is one. He's a Chicago Federal Reserve Board president. Um, you know, indicating that perhaps the pace of growth is, uh, is not quite where it was. Inflation, and we got data in Canada on inflation, is moving away from central bank targets of 2%. So the national inflation rate in Canada, as an example, in May, falling to 1.3% uh, from a 1.6% headline print in the month of April. So as gasoline prices fall, they contribute to this disinflation or deflationary pressure that we're seeing. So it's interesting um, in trying to uh, amalgamate the data and make sense of it, but there's certainly, I think, the market interpreting this, the oil pullback, this issue about demand, the commentary from Fed, government, uh, Fed presidents and central banks around the world saying, perhaps we don't need to move as fast or as far as previously indicated, um, and then this, this move on inflation away from this 2% target rate that most central banks have, all sort of conspiring to create a little bit of a dark cloud uh, in the markets, I think, this particular week. Um, so we'll obviously continue to monitor those things, but this is, I think, the, the, the growing feeling that we were, we were seeing build in uh, in markets, and then of course we'll have some price discovery in the bond markets and the and the equity markets to try to figure out you know whether the bulls win or the bears win in this particular argument. But those global macro uh, issues, I think, were were very interesting this week. Now, um, I should uh, remind everybody that we've got a seminar coming up that we'd like to invite you to. It's going to take place on Tuesday, July the twenty fifth. It's 7 to 8 o'clock as normal, and it's going to be held in the north this time at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine, Spirits, and Beer. And we're going to be talking about the opportunities and risks that lie ahead of us uh, and uh, how to position properly as you transition into or are living in retirement with respect to those various risks and opportunities. Stay tuned after the break because we're going to hear uh, the latest market update from Manulife's Dan Janis. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back here with Dave and Faisal. Um, we get lots of questions, Faisal, about what's happening in, with interest rates, right? What impact is that going to have on the economy, on bonds, all of these things? And we've got a terrific guest uh, that we're very happy to have back with us today. Dan Janis is a Senior Portfolio Manager, Manulife Asset Management. He runs the global, uh, the global multi-sector bond strategy. He's also co-lead and Portfolio Manager of the Manulife Strategic Income Fund. Dan, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for taking some time with us. Uh, thank you, guys. So, um, yeah, we've got lots to talk about. Can we, um, can we maybe just talk about a bond guy's perspective of the, of the economy? Just give us a big-picture view of how you see the world right now. Okay. Uh, world is, I think, from a, from a bond perspective, a lot of the credit markets are fairly priced, some a little expensive, probably high yields, probably a little bit more 
uh, leaning to a little bit less fairly priced. But I think the economy is growing, and I look at three areas, the U.S., I look at Europe, and I look at uh, you know, Asia, which is predominantly uh, China. And I think each of those regions, we can say, are operating, we think, uh, comfortably uh, at, at a rate that I think is uh, conducive uh, for economic growth globally. So I, I think um, the glass is half full uh, in this environment right now. But wait a second, Dan, because you're president. I mean, you're down in Boston, and we've got President Trump tweeting stuff out, and there's lots of confusion, uh, even with the Trump effect. You're comfortable. We've got we've got the global economy moving forward, not backwards. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's gonna, you know, he's, you know, with this new tweeting policy, which we've never seen before <laughs> in financial markets, it's going to create daily volatility. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's systemic volatility. And we do think over time uh, there's a Probably a 30% chance, maybe a less of impeachment. We would put a lower probability. But I think if he gets past that, there is a 60 to 70% chance that something gets done uh, later, uh, probably late September, early October. So I would f- feel that that would be more positive. So I'm not as uh, negative as the naysayers say. Dan, when I was with you in Boston, we sat down and a couple of things that you and I have shared on information in the past has been on some of the things that you worry about when you look in the world. Today, when you look at things that are going well, there's got to be pockets that, that concern you, that, that put you at ease, not only from a bond manager's perspective, but overall from an economic uh, perspective, which will also influence the stock market. What are your What are your concerns that you have today? Sure. I think when we look at a product like this, you know, we have four risks that we, we look at, interest rate risk, credit risk. Uh, foreign exchange risk, and then liquidity risk. I think the two bigger risks right now are probably the interest rate risk of rates potentially going higher and disrupting markets. And then second, and, and Tommy uh, Goggins and myself and Kisu Park on my team, we've been worried about this probably for the past seven years is liquidity, especially more in fixed income than in equity markets. Uh, we find that uh, the ability of market makers to make prices because of all the restrictions with Basel III Volcker Rule uh, and less proprietary debts has limited some of the liquidity and bond issuance. So that is a big risk that we think going forward. So transparency of what you own, I think, is more important. And relationships with the street are very important. You know, being a bond manager with the size that we have of, of almost $37 billion of U.S. Yeah, so let's let's just jump on the perspective of liquidity and the risk and transparency more importantly, because you and I had a good conversation about this. There are other funds, there are other bond managers that use synthetic product versus the actual bonds that you purchase. So tell us a bit about what your concerns are when not all bond funds and all bond managers act in the same way. So so what is the concern about buying a synthetic product versus a an actual physical bond? Well, I think it's, and, and again, I'm, we're not going to knock our competition, but we are competitive. But just, I think for transparency's sake, it's easy to understand if your top 10 holdings are defined as, you know, the, you know, the government of New Zealand or government of Philippines or, you know, with a name on them, then to have a, you know, sort of a 25-A-7, you know, derivative <laughs> that you don't know what that is. And I think we've witnessed this from a, institutional standpoint globally, especially in Japan and Korea, where our transparency, I think, has helped us uh, gain more assets. So I think the transparency aspect of owning cash bonds, I think, is more prevalent today than in the past. Yeah, I think that's uh, that makes good sense. Dan, can you um, 
maybe just give us a bit of an understanding, uh, or at least your opinion, on what interest rates uh, are doing right now. What's your expectation, not just in North America, but also in Asia and in Europe? What what can we expect over the next 6, 12, 18 months with respect to central bank policy and the impact on interest rates? Well, I would say it's a little bit different now. I mean, Kisu, myself, and Tommy and the team have noticed that now – U.S. is not alone in talking that the rate policies are low, mm-hmm. uh, and the U.S. is you know doing something about it by raising rates. Uh, we did see some tightening of monetary conditions in China. Uh, we've seen uh, Bank of Canada say that right now this dovish stance is probably over, and potentially uh, that they may start to look at tightening up policy. I'm not sure when, but maybe in the next three to six months. Uh, we've seen the ECB talk about potentially a policy of tapering, which would mean that you know this easy low interest rate policy may change a little bit. Possibly, maybe even Australia and New Zealand later next year may now start to talk about either a neutral or potentially a, a, a little bit higher in rates. And then we had the Bank of England, you know, have their vote. I, I would assume it's you know it's five to three, but I, more five to six to two that they may even start to look at, you know, saying that rates are basically a little bit too low. So that concerns me probably not as much this year, but probably later next year that you may see the central banks a little bit more on the same path than on this divergent path where, you know, people are cutting rates and we're raising rates. Maybe it's not as divergent. So I, I think we have to be careful with that, especially on lower quality credit. So, so this is where I, I start to figure out what's what's going on through these managers like yourself and your competition out there. I'll use the hockey term. How are you going to stick handle through this if if we start seeing a a, a, a increase in interest rates pretty much in all the regions, um, all the different times, of course, and different magnitudes, but they're all going to be slowly moving up. What people have learned over the years is as interest rates rise, bond prices fall. That's bad for bonds. Don't own bonds. Buy something else. How do you stick handle through that when you start seeing interest rates rising? And how do you perform for your, your investors when you, when you have that kind of a situation? Sure. I think sort of three ways. Number one would be to have a lower duration profile, which means that as interest rates rise, your risk to your portfolio is lessened. So you'll probably lose less or actually you could have some hedges in place that you will offset that downdraft in bond prices, which we have now a lower duration profile. Uh, Number two would be to make sure you're in liquid credit situations of decent size. So the esoteric smaller type deals, lower quality, triple C's, you know, the developing emerging market types that have small markets, you're going to avoid those. I think that's number two. And then on number three, again, you have to manage that currency right and being in Canada, you've got to relatively manage that to Canada. And I think, uh, you know, with the Bank of Canada changing its tune, uh, we've been predominantly hedged back to Canada in all our U.S. assets, probably between, uh, you know, 92 and 95 percent. So that probably will not hurt us. And down the road, that currency piece could be very significant to some of our contemporaries who don't hedge like us. But those would be the three points that I think that we could stick handle through uh, to to salvage uh, some sort of return in that three to five percent return uh, during this uh, volatile period. Okay, and, and I just want to be clear on that point, Dan, because there's uh, you know Faisal's comment is really taken from 
from an, an average investor's perspective, right? That linkage, that, that very linear relationship between a rising interest rate environment and a falling bond price environment um, is, is not, it's not necessarily that simple. Uh, and when you talk on a global basis, right, there are pockets in different areas, not just countries, but currencies and different duration of bonds or maturities and so on and so forth that you can do to construct a portfolio to still give a positive rate of return in an environment that the average person might think is very destructive for bonds. Is that a safe, safe statement? Yes, I would say that not all bond products are created equal and not necessarily do you want to have all high-quality bond situation because of that interest rate risk so you can diversify away into other areas around the world that have less sensitivity to rates. The other, the other point is this, the, the actual specific securities that you pick, uh, whether it be floating rate loans, mortgages, interest-only securities, or fixed or floating pay that have a variable piece to that that would actually perform well if rates went up. We have that ability, too, which I think the average uh, individual investor would have a hard time trying to source those type of bonds. So we can manage that to you know, highlight if rates go up, those securities would do well. So we have some natural offsets in the portfolio that we can take advantage of. You said something very interesting about high-quality bonds and you know, the safety of, say, a government of Canada. I want to pick that up after the break and help people understand that what we consider safe, Faisal, right, good quality government bonds, may in fact be your problem in a market with a rising interest rate environment. Join us after the break to hear Dan's comments on that. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. We're talking about interest rates, and uh, we've got a terrific resource uh, with us today, Dan Janis, a senior portfolio manager, Manulife Asset Management. Now, Dan runs the multi-sector bond strategy. He's also the co-lead and uh, portfolio manager of the Manulife Strategic Income. Dan is also a, a longtime acquaintance friend and also a, uh, a contributor to our advisory board, him and his team, and I want to thank you for joining us today, Dan. We left you uh, at, the, at the break uh, with a comment about uh, good quality bonds. So a lot of people, retail investors, investors like you know regular uh, people, you and me, Faisal, will look at owning, um, say, a Government of Canada bond as, as safety, a 10-year Government of Canada bond or something like that. Dan, what's the potential risk to a client of just owning, for a Canadian, a, just a domestic bond portfolio that's considered to be safe, high-quality government bonds? What's the potential risk there? Well, we have, uh, you know... There's no credit element there. It's basically just a duration element. So the longer you go out on the curve as you know, rates go up, that sensitivity to rates means that your bond price would go down. Uh, so we would have a problem with the duration impact on bonds. So if you had a 1% move with a duration of 6 you lose 6% of your bond minus your coupon. So there's, there is potential embedded losses absolutely there. So you have to be careful on how you, uh, you know, source the high quality and what your position size is in those. You can have some, but you know that in a rising rate environment, those longer durations, more sensitivity to rates going up, you would lose on those. So that's why you need to diversify away from just high quality assets into more of a global focused, potentially with credit that would be less sensitive to a rising rate. Actually, the rising rates may help some of these sort of credit situations. So a diverse portfolio may be better in this environment with rates so low. 
So a lot of advisors in Canada or Canadian portfolio managers have a bias to Canada buying domestic bonds, um, which in our opinion, at least mine and Dave's, is that uh, there's, there's bigger and better opportunity elsewhere. So when you look at the entire spectrum that you have, um, where do you see the opportunities? What are some of the, the buys for today? And what are some of the areas that you don't want to even touch? Uh, I'll talk about the areas that I don't want to touch. We will not be in Ukraine, Argentina, Venezuela, uh, Middle East, uh, or developing Africa. We think those markets are dangerous and fraught with illiquidity, and you know we don't have an edge from an information standpoint, so we stay away. And then the currencies are volatile. I think areas that we would go into to offset are areas such as India, uh, Indonesia, which are improving, getting upgrades. The countries are are now starting to become well-run. Uh, they have better people from a treasury standpoint to central bankers that understand that as they grow, they need capital from capital markets. So they're embracing that and putting in regulatory policies, whether it be from a budget standpoint, tax standpoint, or corporate uh, development standpoint to encourage businesses. All those are becoming, you know, we think, very important to help the economy grow and be more balanced. So I think that and then the currency we feel is relatively stable. So you get a higher yield type scenario in an improving economy uh, with a currency that could have a nice little uh, relative rebound relative to Canada. So we think that those opportunities make sense. I I think also when you're looking at, uh, you know, some of the uh, credit situations in the U.S. from a stability standpoint, not great yields, but stability in ABS and CBS. Uh, you know, trophy property types, you know, the Time Warner building and et cetera, but not, you know, malls or any of these condos. And then an ABS, a new business that has developed is, uh, you know, a whole business securitization. So it's the Domino's Pizza franchise revenue together with, you know, when you're looking at, uh, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, et cetera. Those type situations give you a shorter duration. So about a five to seven year piece of paper between three and a half and four percent. And they're all investment grade, either triple B or triple B plus. So very interesting opportunities, less volatile with a coupon that you can understand. So there's a, there's a scenario globally that confuses investors. Um, this this idea of negative interest rates that we see in, you know, it's perhaps some uh, Japanese bonds. You've got some European uh, communities with through the uh, bonds through the European central bank's uh, monetary policy. Talk to us a little bit about help help a regular investor understand what the implication is of, an, of a negative yield, and are you interested in any of them? Okay, negative yields, basically you're lending money to a, a government and then paying them to take it. I, I don't think that's a, you know, if you're looking for income, that does not make sense for, you know, a pension or someone who needs income. So those securities, you know, for an income uh, do not make sense. So we have not invested in any of those because we have a lot of pension pensioners uh, involved in our products or people that need income. Um, why they did that is because the, they exhausted all the monetary policy situations and they needed to uh, increase liquidity in the markets and negative yields gave that added push of adding more liquidity. For an investor, it doesn't do anything if you're looking for income, but for the government and for the central bank, it does create more liquidity in the market to help you know, thwart off this big downturn from 08. So really, it's more of a central bank tool, not as an as an end investor. I don't think that's where you want to be. 
What does that mean for Europe, for uh, for your interest in Europe, and um, or is it just select uh, you know select securities? Uh, we don't have anything in Europe right now, um, so um, you know we're potentially looking at uh, potentially building a bucket of European securities, but we want to get it with positive yields. So it would be probably more of the high quality situations. It could be an Apple computer, a Hewlett Packard. Hopefully, we can get positive yields there. And then the currency, the euro, we're getting a little bit more positive there. It may be more of a total return through the euro than from income. So it's not an income play, but a total return play. Other than that, there's really not much uh, great opportunities uh, in Europe from an income standpoint. Yeah, it looks difficult. So so bonds pay, at least, Faisal, in your, my opinion, bonds do play an important role in, a, in an overall portfolio. Dan, the concern that we get from regular investors is that it's going to be a, a total drag on the portfolio. I'd like your forecast or your guidance on what you think a realistic rate of return is, again, using your style of investing, but over the next, uh, call it 12 months, go year to date in the next 12 months, what do you, what do you sure. see? Sure. Sure. We, we feel, I mean, we've, our goal, here's what our goal is first. Our goal is to have a volatility between 4 and 8% with a shop ratio or return over risk of one. That means we would match somewhere in that 4 to 8%. I think now with the current low envi- envi- rate, interest rate environment, you probably set your hi- sights between 35 to 5.5% with emphasis more on the 4. Um, so I would assume probably at the, the 4% level, would it uh, surprise me that we could get that? I mean, I'm being conservative. We could do you know better than that with some other, you know, security picks and maybe some currency management. But in that in that window of the three and a half to four percent, I'd feel more comfortable there over the next year. Yeah, in terms of looking setting an expectation. I think that's um I think that from a bond perspective, Faisal, you know, people thinking about that, that's certainly not destructive, right? I mean that's no. it's interesting. When you look globally and you've got the entire global marketplace to pick from and you're not limited to perhaps domestic, you know, governments like uh, government of Canada's, then they're the world is your oyster. Sorry, that's a cheesy <laughs> line, but um, that's great. Uh, listen, Dan, we've taken up a ton of your time, and I appreciate you joining us uh, today, and we appreciate uh, all of your input. Glad to help. Thanks, guys. All right. We've been joined by Dan Janis. He's the Senior Portfolio Manager at Manulife Asset Management, clearly focused on bonds. They manage about $37 billion and mostly pension assets, so we, uh, we appreciate his input. Now, we've got a seminar coming up on Tuesday, and guess what part of the conversation is going to be around? Income. Income. How much income can you get? How long can it last for? And what are some of the biggest risks when people are trying to get income in their retirement? Uh, They've been saving a lot of money over these years, Dave. And if they do not have a proper strategy in place to provide income, that could be disastrous for their retirement Mm -hmm. futures. All right, Faisal, to to make sure that nobody has this uh, disastrous outcome and that their income is protected in in their retirement uh, and their retirement lifestyle is protected, join us at our next seminar. It's coming up on Tuesday, July the 25th, 7 o'clock, at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine, Spirits, and Beer. To register for that, give us a call at 966-8400, or you can uh, register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Stay tuned after the break to hear about what Albertans actually think about their doctors. You're on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on News Talk 770 and More Than Money. 
new survey of Albertans just found that patients are generally pretty satisfied with the care that they're receiving from their their family doctor. But there were some areas of concern, Faisal. Mm-hmm. I mean, healthcare clearly is a is a uh, a topic that is becoming increasingly important to this demographic that we call baby boomers as they're getting a little bit older, right? You're going to visit the doctor maybe a little bit more than they used to. Yeah. And the people, I think, are getting sensitive to that, right? Anyways, we've got a terrific guest to help us understand a little bit about the survey results and uh, what, if anything, can be done to improve the areas where some deficiencies were identified. We have Dr. Patrick Carr, who is the president of the Alberta Medical Association, joining us. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So let's, let's just talk a little bit about the recent study um, and about uh, you're looking, you're surveying, I guess, Albertans just to try to find out a little bit about the satisfaction level that they have with their family doctors, and maybe just give us a high-level summary of what the survey uh, what the survey found. Well, thanks. Uh, so let me start by saying, first of all, that it's, uh, the survey is done through AlbertaPatients.ca, which is our online community, which has really provided us some uh, some great input that we share with uh, both the Alberta Medical Association and our partners as well. So AlbertaPatients.ca has about 5,000 members now, and that number is growing. And they really do provide us with a, a valuable uh, insight into the care they receive and uh, how they perceive the medical system. So we're always looking for more people to join. But we're very happy with the results of this survey because it showed uh, that the vast majority of patients really are pleased with the care they're receiving from their general practitioners. And it was, uh, and that's good. That's, uh, I mean, that's terrific in, in the sense that... Um... People are generally happy. There was some frustrations identified uh, in the survey. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, the non-medical insights around uh, delays in appointments and access uh, were really very helpful. And uh, so, so the number one job for physicians is obviously focusing on patient health and care. But mm-hmm. sometimes the, uh, the softer non-medical elements, like explaining why a clinic may be running behind or why your appointment is not on time, uh, may seem like less of a priority. But the survey shows that, uh, that those things really do matter to patients, and there's fairly simple things that doctors can do to help improve them. For example, in the survey, uh, those who uh, found the wait times to be acceptable, uh, many more had an explanation as to why the clinic was running behind, whereas those who found the waits more unacceptable didn't receive that explanation. So, uh, so it's, it's quite clear that patients do understand uh, some of the difficulties in terms of uh, managing a large patient population. I will say, though, that uh, one interesting finding from the survey came that uh, the level of satisfaction and, uh, and level of care improved when patients had a really strong relationship with a family doctor. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we're looking at ways that we can help strengthen that relationship with patients. What, what do you attribute? Is it just a personal relationship? It's the amount of time a, a physician spending with, uh, with a patient? Or I guess I'm asking you anecdotally, is there any conclusion yeah, you can draw there? I think it's all of those. Um, we found that satisfaction with care was much higher when a patient had a relationship with one family doctor versus multiple family doctors. So I think that probably speaks to the relationship between the, uh, the patient and a, and a doctor in terms of the doctor understanding their history better, getting to know the, the patient better, and the social factors that may be influencing their care. And so I think all of that plays a role in improving care and improving satisfaction. The one area when I was reading at least the, the summary, the, the issue around uh, after-hours care, there seemed to be some, uh, some concern, some frustration around that. What did you guys discover? So I, I think that's one thing that we're, uh, uh, we're exploring with our primary care leaders. So uh, 
primary care networks or PCNs are, are really becoming the foundation of primary care. And there is some inconsistency with those in availability for after-hours care. Recently, we uh, just ratified an agreement with the PCNs, an overall structural agreement, that should hopefully provide uh, or help us provide some more consistency with our primary care networks in terms of after-hours access. So that is an area that we recognize that, uh, that we're going to work on. Yeah, I mean, doctors have lives too, I suppose, uh, Faisal, yeah. right? But um, I guess there's ways as yeah, you processes. You can't have yeah. your, your family physician <clears throat> that you want to have a personal relationship with from a, for, yeah. with work and, and then have them on, on call 24-7. Yeah. That's not feasible. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. There, there are a lot of uh, logistical issues that, uh, that need to be sorted out. And uh, very often in primary care networks, family doctors will work as a team. So they'll cover each other. So sometimes patients may get to know many doctors within that team, but also uh, also really have their primary relationship with a single doctor. That being said, primary care networks also involve other health professionals, and very often they're part of the, uh, the team as well in the call contacts that, uh, that may be available. So there are a number of ways that primary care networks can address this. Yeah. So one of the things that I read on the, on the uh, piece was about um, wait times. 58% um, of those surveyed were able to visit their doctor within a week, either through walk-in or a scheduled appointment. Now, yeah. is that is that acceptable by the patient now? Is that is that a standard that we're um, accepting, or is that something we just have to live with? Well, the majority found it to be acceptable, but there there's always room for improvement. I think it can be difficult at times um, for a doctor to uh, determine the problems a patient may want to present with, and and. Uh, you know, it's always a bit of a balancing act in terms of access for all the patients versus spending adequate time with any single one patient. And so I think that's uh, a bit of a struggle that doctors uh, uh, will always have. I don't think there's any way around that. But, uh, but in terms of managing weights for appointments, I think that's another thing that we can examine and see if there's ways we can do it better. We often, um, we've done lots of, uh, I guess, interviews with various medical professionals in Canada, outside of Canada, and there's often comparisons made uh, to other medical systems around the world. I'm just curious as to, you know, as the president of the Alberta Medical Association, what kind of what's on the top of mind for you, Patrick, in terms of what are you thinking about to improve the service to Albertans? Well, I think we're looking at a number of factors. I think with our recent amending agreement, physicians really seeing are seeing themselves more and more as stewards of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So that's ensuring quality access for patients. That's obviously job one, but as well managing our resources properly so that uh, so that the system remains sustainable. Because really, I think our healthcare is second to none in the world. I think. Uh, I think physicians and other health professionals do a great job for our patients, but there are always rooms for improvement and potentially efficiencies that we can realize that will make the system better and make sure it lasts into the future. So I think that's where our big focus is, is, uh, is providing that quality care while balancing the sustainability. Yeah, I don't think anybody disagree with that. We wish you luck in terms of being able to you know, take advantage of some of those uh, systemic problems and, and improve those efficiencies. And I want to thank you very much for taking some time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We have been joined by Dr. Patrick Carr, who is the president of the Alberta Medical Association, and the health bucket. The health bucket is a is a piece of the uh, the overall retirement picture, quality of life, quality of care, right? All of these things feed into the 
to the quality of the lifestyle that you're going to experience in retirement? Yeah, you know, there's three parts to your, your health that we need to kind of focus on. And when I sit down with my clients on their health bucket, we talk about what are you going to do for preventive care? Now, that could be as simple as getting a gym membership all the way through working with your, your family physician and other specialists. There, there's also your day-to-day needs, like medical and dental costs that are going to come through. Then there's the long-term care issues. Like what happens if you're in a long-term care facility or if you need long-term home care? Those are all going to have, in my opinion, out-of-pocket expenses. How do you pay for that? What are the situations? The what-ifs start to come up. So, Faisal, we're going to talk about the health bucket and how to properly plan for that as you move through retirement on uh, at our next seminar, which is going to be held on Tuesday, July the 25th, 7 o'clock at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine, Spirits, and Beer. To register for that, give us a call at 966-8400 or online at morethanmoneyradio.com. And just a quick reminder that you can access any of our past segments that we cover on More Than Money at our website, morethanmoneyradio.com, or you can have them delivered directly to you by searching for More Than Money, in brackets, CHQR, on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on News Talk 770. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.